Welcome to the Designated Drinker Show, the podcast that's raising the bar on craft cocktails. I am your host, Louise Solison. With me, it's my very, very talented friend who can be as happy as a lark or crazy as a loon, the mixtress, DC Gina. Um, I will take the loon because that's the cutest <laughs> bird of them all. Be a little cray. Yeah, that or a fluffy butt chicken. I'm not really sure. A fluffy butt chicken. Yeah, they have fluffy butts. It's like a thing. I didn't know that. They do. They're very soft. I would assume so. Yes. All right. Well, I'm, I'm done. Keep going. <laughs> well, it is pop quiz time, Gina. All right. Okay. You got four clues. Okay. I'll give you four clues All to right. guess this I'm famous ready. American icon. He stands eight foot two. Okay. He has a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. Okay. And he has some famous cousins from countries from all around the world. This is kind of funny. Um, it's Al Bilardo is from Mexico. And I think it might be Pino or Pino is from the Netherlands. Okay. Pupas is from Portugal. Okay. And Garbaldo is from Brazil. Okay. And it takes... 6,000 individual feathers to create his beautiful plumage. So I get to guess? Well, go ahead. Who you got? So I went to University of Maryland. <laughs> and as we all know, Jim Hen- um, Henson. Henson. I was going to say Henderson. <laughs> Henson. Jeez, my alma mater. Went there, so I know who this is. Big Bird. It is Big Bird. Because he's in our student union along with Kermit. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. I didn't know he had cousins from around the world, though. I did not know that. That is a very new fact to me. But the, the, Apparently, they're different colors than Big Bird. What? Yeah, I, I'm sure. I, yeah. but that, we just happened to know all of that about the Muppets and all yep. that stuff. And he invented Kermit the Frog when he went to school there. Yep, that's awesome. That's yeah. cool. Yeah. That's cool. Yeah. So, just so you know. This you feel little... smart right now. <laughs> I always fail these quizzes, and I finally got one wrong. Right. <laughs> I think you're going to get a lot smarter on this episode. Um, because this little pop quiz was inspired by today's designated drinker. Please welcome to the show someone who can school us on all things birds. He is an assistant professor of wildlife ecology of Oregon State University. He is Jim Rivers. Welcome to the show, Jim. Hello. Thanks for having me. Thanks for being here. Are you ready to get us all smart? I am ready. <laughs> <laughs> So what drew you into, into academia? What drew me into academia? Well, it started with, I think, just a, a general interest in nature and wildlife and how the world works. And I found that through my studies, working in wildlife biology was an area that allowed me to, to just ask basic questions about how the world works and in particular, how animals interact with their environments. And when I was an undergraduate, I started my university um, degree path in engineering, and that turned out to be a terrible fit for me. Didn't do very well, <laughs> and ended up switching majors to wildlife ecology, and and really um, kind of blossomed as a student and realized it was my passion. And at that point, wanted to go on to graduate school, and then I thought being a university professor would be really fun because I'd be able to to never really grow up or get a real job and teach students and do research. And, and here I am. That's awesome. So um, I think you told me when we were speaking before that basically birds were your thing from the time you were really young. Yeah, I, I wish I, I knew how I initially got started. My mother always gives credit to um, having me by the window when I was 
she she said it was a two month old um, baby in her hands that was watching the bird feeders, which I don't think I don't think any um, <laughs> one thinks that that actually could have happened. But as a kid, I was encouraged to be outside and to um, explore. I grew up in a, a state park in Massachusetts. Wow, which sounds a lot more glamorous than it, than it was. It was really a beach that was um, overrun in the summertime when it was hot, but in the in the off season, in the fall and and spring and winter, it was basically an opportunity for me to to run around and watch birds and look at animals. And um, it really was something that that took off when I was young. And I was the odd kid who was telling his grandparents what the warblers they were seeing in their backyard was when I was nine or ten. So that's awesome. That's cute. So your mom basically just opened the door and pushed you out. <laughs> yeah, yeah. They'd call social services on that nowadays, but back then it was good parenting. <laughs> no, my mom had the rule. Didn't your mom? My mom. I wasn't allowed to come. I had to be home before the street lights were all, come on. But if you made like guest appearances, like coming back to and from the house, my mother would say, "If you come back in the door one more time, you're gonna have to stay in." Which then, of course, just made you stay out. Well, of course, yeah. it was night in the seventies though, seventy eighties. <laughs> And then all those children went missing, and then they finally were like, maybe this is not the best kind of parenting. <laughs> However, Jim, where you, where, like what you're saying, where you live, um, I live similarly, it's like in a, in a similar area now in, in Maryland. Mm-hmm. So now I make my kids go outside all the time. I'm like, go outside and find something. And they'll be like, okay. And like we have like two acres or a little bit more, and they'll like come back with all these weird things. And they're like, mom, did you know we have this? blue and yellow bird that lives in the back of the, in the tree line. I'm like, no. And then we go and look for it. And there, truly I've learned all about kinds of different birds that I didn't even know existed ever in, in plain sight. And now that I've seen them in Maryland, I realize they're in DC, but they, it just never occurred to me that they're, I just thought everything was a finch. I'm like, that's a finch. <laughs> and everyone's like, it's, it's not a finch. I'm like, it looks like a finch. And they're like, it's just not. It's a hawk. And it's giant. I'm like, oh, it's it's not a giant finch? That's weird. A raptorial finch. Well, you never know in D.C. Well, it, that just goes to show you the power of, of observation. I've, I'm putting together a course that's on um, terrestrial vertebrate ID. So we go out and we look for amphibians, reptiles, mammals, and birds. And it turns out that most of the time we just find birds. But the students in that class oftentimes start by saying exactly what you said, Gina, everything is a finch or a robin. And then by the end of the course, they actually have the skills to to sort those different species out and understand and actually observe and see that they're doing different things. And it's really fun because it's one of those courses where you can honestly tell the students you'll see the world differently at the end of this course. And they say, oh, you're just an overblown university professor. You say, no, really, when you walk outside from now on, you will see things differently. And I've had students come up to me at the end of a course and say, yeah, I see the world in a different way. I've got my field guide now and I can identify things. And it's really, it's one of those few moments in teaching where you can actually see that progress on a really short time frame. It's really exciting. That's awesome. That's awesome. Maybe that's what you need to get the um, girls, like a beginner's like field guide to birds. Excuse me. Do you realize I live with Neil Dundee, right? <laughs> You think they don't have that binoculars and they're like out there and they, they, they know more about birds than I do. And they literally are like, um, they do this thing now to know if it's a hawk flying, if it has all the fingers when it's flying and they know it's a hawk versus a turkey vulture. Ooh. So guess what mommy says? You don't know what you're talking about. And I just drive the car. <laughs> and then, and then if like, and, and it's, it's nutty, but I, I have to say Birds are kind of amazing because they tell you more about like the weather and stuff, right? It, like, 
Jim, is that true? Like, I live in a farming community now, and everyone's like, oh, all the birds are in the tree. It's going to rain. Is that real? <laughs> I haven't heard that particular um, description of, of impending rain or precipitation from birds and trees. But it is true that if you think about birds, they've been evolving in their environments for hundreds of thousands, millions of years. And so when a storm is coming, they know a storm is coming. They, they sense a change in barometric pressure, just like a lot of our domestic animals know when there's an earthquake or there's something going on. You always hear about that. And in fact, some researchers have tried to use animals as early detection systems for earthquakes and things like that. So you, if you have a bird feeder at home in the wintertime and you know a storm's coming, you can see that the activity really bounces up. And then sometimes if it's going to be a long storm, the activity drops off and the birds have kind of gone off to a, a sheltered location. They've got their, their bellies full and they're just going to wait out the storm. So you can tell a lot by birds. Um, you can even think about birds as being uh, basically they can tell us all about the environment. So that's one of the reasons why we study them, because we know that birds over the last 50 years or so, there's the, the numbers that's been put out is that we've lost about 3 billion birds. Wow. And so we know that, that a lot of that's due to habitat change. Uh, and we know that birds are, are really important, not just because they're fun to look at, but they do all kinds of different services for us. They eat insects and they um, provide a lot of benefits that humans ultimately get. So cool. I mean, cool and not so cool, right? I guess no. it's the canary. No, I mean, it's like... The canary in the coal mine, exactly. It's amazing that there's so much to be learned by something that we probably, to your point, Jim, without we go through the world without even noticing they're there because they're always there. And to your point, you didn't realize those birds that you see out in the wild are really all around you all the time just because we're mm -hmm. just too busy to stop and not smell the roses, but I don't know, look at the birds. <laughs> all right, Jim, I, I have my question. Are you ready? Yep. I'm Why ready. are we supposed to not feed the birds in Maryland right now? What, what is happening? You know, that's an open question. And there has been a mysterious disease that birds are getting. I don't know a lot about it because it's not happening on the West Coast uh, here in Oregon. We, we've only heard about it from our colleagues. And the thought is that by putting out um, feeders, you're concentrating individuals and you may be um, helping that, whatever that disease is, to, to spread more rapidly. So um, that's one of the, the things that's come up. I think one of the hypotheses that I heard was it was related to the brood of cicadas, the 17-year um, brood 10 of cicadas that came up this year, that there may have been some sort of um, fungal pathogen or, or, or pesticide, but I think that's been discounted and, um, and we don't really know. So that's kind of, that's one of the things about bird research is that we know birds really well, probably better than any other vertebrate, but there's lots of things that just crop up and, and ornithologists are scratching their heads saying, we're not sure what this is. And we need to, we need to spend more time looking at it. Hmm. My, my birds are, my birds are not happy. They keep coming to my bird feeder because we have like a bunch of them around the house. And they're like, hey lady, we know you two, where's the food? <laughs> and we're like, we can't feed you because we don't want any, like, we don't, we don't want to be the cause of spreading anything. And like, and it's, it's crazy though, because like now I miss them because they literally come on the side of the house and you see like all these different birds and then, you know, they have eggs and I didn't, roll, I didn't and, and we have um, chickens on our property. We have chickens now. And like, I didn't realize that like, you know, birds in nature have clutches. They lay lots of eggs and a chicken lays a egg. And then you have ducks and they lay, they can lay a clutch or an egg. It's like, Things are crazy. And like, mm -hmm. I'm like, I don't know, I, 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 I admire what you do because I, I can't believe there's so much like with this. Like, I mean. 
the whole science, but <laughs> I don't mean that. I mean, like, I live it every right? day and I don't realize what I'm living. Do you know what I mean? Like, I can't explain it. Like, I, you could really separate it from, like, the science of it and be like, I get eggs from this bird and that's it. But those birds have personalities. Mm-hmm. They, like, they, they have do. to have some sort of memory. They do. They do. In fact, um, I, I don't know if you mentioned um, chickadees, but chickadees are one of the species that often come to bird feeders and you'll see them. They come, they take a single sunflower seed, if that's what you have in your feeder, and they leave. And if you watch them, sometimes they go and they sit on a, a branch and they'll peck open that seed and they'll get the meat out of it. Other times they'll take that seed and they'll hide it somewhere. So they're, uh, they're in the group of birds that we call caching, food caching birds. So jays do this. Um, a lot of members of the chickadee family does this as well. And, and it's thought to be a buffer against environmental and variability. So if you don't know what the weather is going to be like all winter long, because you're a small bird, and you can't predict it. What you can do is basically have your own bird feeders that you put out in the environment and hide it because you don't know if that bird feeder is going to be there in the future, but you have control over those individual seeds. So it's, it's, it's a really, it's an interesting behavior. Birds do it to different degrees of species. And as you mentioned, there's personalities. And so birds do things to different degrees. There's some really bold birds. And in fact, this this is one thing that I observed as a kid at, at bird feeders is that you could stand out by a bird feeder with seeds in your hand. And every now and then one chickadee would land on your, your hand and take a seed from you, but not all of them. Some of them would just say, no, I'm, I'm gonna pass on that. That, that, that kid looks like he's gonna eat me. And the other ones would say, well, I'm, I'm rolling the dice on this. I'm gonna go down and get a, a seed. So there are very different, um, we call them personalities or some, some researchers call them coping styles because they're tied in with behavior and they're also tied in with physiology as well. But, and when you look at birds, you say, oh, all robins are the same in that flock. But, you know, you wouldn't say that about a, a group of, of humans at a concert. You'd say, wow, look at all the diversity that we see. So there's quite a bit out there. It's just something that isn't really um, something that we see at first glance with a lot of these species. So there's a book, right? There's a book um, that we bought that says, uh, you're, it's called Chicken Speak. Because we want to know the chickens, like the clucking. They make a lot of sounds, but they make the same sounds a lot. And when we, when my husband comes, they coo at him. They make this like, like this very like, very nice like rolling coo. I can't describe it. He also feeds the mealworms. Like you have no idea. Like he just <laughs> takes them out of his pockets and throws it. He must be like the emperor of their worlds. And then, like, I show up and I'm, like, the person that's, like, I help, like, clean it out and I make sure it's clean. Like, I'm constantly cleaning. And they have, like, a very different sound for me. It's almost like this, um, it's not a, I can't describe it. It's like a rolling sound, right? So, like, they say, in this book, Chicken Speak, it says that this, this sound is, like, a sound of love. Oh. Or, or, or expression of, like, part of, the, part of the group. Yeah. Whereas I am not. <laughs> They are not happy with me, like, because I'm constantly touching their stuff. Yeah. So, like, for me, they're like, oh, like, I'm, I'm almost invasive. And, like, they'll, like, because I'm always disturbing their, their nesting material and cleaning and making sure that they have a good environment. But when my husband's always like, here's some watermelon and here's some mealworms. And they're like, <laughs> and they make this, it's a crazy noise. It's, I mean, if you, <laughs> is that true of all birds? I guess my question is, one, is that real? Is that a real thing? <laughs> Or did we buy this book and now we're brainwashed and we think that's true <laughs> and the birds actually hate us? It's, it sounds like you've experienced it. So it sounds like it's real um, in that sense. I, I could see that. that it, so let me just start off with chickens and, and remind you and your listeners that chickens are a highly domesticated species. So 
Um, when you talk about chickens, you talk about wild birds, they're very different, but they do share some commonalities. And one of one of those things is that they have different um, vocalizations, as you said, with some, and these vocalizations may be to uh, a song to, to woo a female or a song to repel a, a rival male. And they have different contexts in which they use them. So I could I could see that a chicken over time would learn that your husband was the fun parent and coming in with the the candy and, and all the good stuff that they don't get very often. And then you're the you might be seen as not as fun coming in and kind of hiding up <laughs> yeah. behind the, the chickens. So I, I, I wouldn't be surprised if that was the case, but um, I wouldn't necessarily ascribe it to love because that that goes to a whole other realm in terms of kind of animal behavior and interpreting what they're doing. But I suspect that they are, are um, and they may be communicating with each other more than they're communicating with you or your husband. They may be just saying, okay, here's, hey, we're getting some food. And those coups are more of a, a call that would be to, to bring in other members of the flock for the food, as opposed to saying, hey, thanks for, for bringing the food. <laughs> I, I think I'm gonna tell my husband, I told you they don't love you. <laughs> In <laughs> Jim Rivers, in Jim Rivers said it. He's just they're just like, hey, that guy's I, here with food. I guess you're back, Sheen. If you need, if you need that, go for it. Yeah. But with you, they're like, there's an intruder. <laughs> All right, so here's my here's my last crazy bird question. <laughs> These aren't crazy by some of the ones I get. Just so you know. So so again, we live in in. Um, in a little bit of a rural place in Maryland. And, you know, we had the feeders out. We don't, we're not feeding the birds right now, but we have a definitely like robins that come together always to the feeder. Do they mate for life? Most birds that are small, like robins and other, other birds that would, would visit your feeders don't last that long. And so they may be paired for as long as they live, but they don't have a bond that holds from one season to the next. And we know that because we have lots of studies of birds that are nesting and we go out and we capture those birds and we put on uh, bands that only those birds have their unique color combinations and we see them pairing up with different individuals from year year to year there are some birds that have long-term what we call long-term pair bonds which essentially is to say that they mate for life where they stay together but what we know is that if one of those individuals dies the other one doesn't die of heartbreak it actually goes out and finds a mate and initiates the nest and, and breeds afterwards. So it's, uh, I think it's a little bit of, of um, legend, I guess, that, that most birds make for life. Most of them are, are, in fact, some of the studies that have emerged in the last 20, 30 years have shown that males and females are kind of waging this quiet war with each other. And a lot of these birds, like robins, the female will actually mate with other males that she's not um, rearing the chicks with so she'll sneak off and have a what we call an extra pair copulation which is to say which is to say a tryst with with a neighbor <laughs> and in some ways that does that that is a, a benefit to her because she gets to have different genetic material in her offspring in that um, so that they may match better to the environment and males aren't aren't are, are basically doing the same thing you know once the female is on the egg sometimes the males sneak off and do the same thing we used to think that it was just kind of harmony and males and females were there together. And uh, back in the, the 1990s, there was some, some genetic paternity analysis and people kind of dropped their jaw and said, wait a minute, these birds are not doing what we thought. It's not harmony. They're actually kind of out for themselves. So that kind of goes in the face of this idea of, of harmony and, and mating for life and, and always being there for each other. 
it's a it's a dog eat dog world, or maybe Robin Robin eat Robin world. <laughs> what is so? That's crazy. First of all, now everything I believe is wrong. Um, next, I, now, now I have one more question. So, what's the average lifespan of these poor, these little birds, like a robin, or uh, you know, the birds you see in your backyard, backyard birds? Yeah. So it it's it, it's varies on the species. It varies depending whether a bird might be a migrant. It goes all the way to South America and back, or whether it hangs out in your backyard all winter like a chickadee might. Um, you know, probably just a couple of years. Uh, or perhaps even less than that. It uh, it depends on how old the bird is because we know that when birds leave the nest, it's a real bottleneck. And so a lot of the birds that leave or fledge from the nest don't actually make it to the point where they survive all the way to the breeding season. But once you survive to one breeding season, you have a, a decent opportunity to, to survive to the next. Uh, and there are some birds that may live three, four, five, six years. There's always one bird in a study that comes back year after year and someone tallies out how many young it may have had or how many miles it flew and migration. But those are usually the exceptions. Most birds, um, it's it's a, it's a pretty short lifespan that they have. All right. I, I have another question. <laughs> Keep going. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sitting over here. So so if you're not allowed to, right now, we're not allowed to feed the birds, right? And like say you want to, um, like butterflies, right? I, and I don't know why I'm putting this together, but I just have in my mind. You know, you plant butterfly gardens and you're like, okay, going to plant this butterfly garden and butterflies are going to come. And it's honestly, it really is true. They come. So if you're mm-hmm. not allowed to feed the birds bird seed anymore, just say it comes like a real thing. Other than berries, because I know berries are real because birds will eat that and they eat my figs constantly. Mm-hmm. <laughs> what else can you plant that would entice a birds to naturally come by your house? So many of us, when we feed birds, go out and buy a big 25 pound bag of sunflower seed. Uh, you can plant sunflowers. That's something that is a um, a natural plant, or at least what you'd buy in the store is a derivative of, of a natural plant. In fact, my neighbors have these really large sunflower seeds, and I, I say large measured one. It was about 14, 14 feet tall, this this individual plant. And it's, I don't know where they got them. They're, they're ginormous. And what I wanted to do last summer was to collect some of the seed heads so that I could grow some in our garden, but I could, didn't get to them in time. All the birds came in and ate all those seeds right off the top of the sunflowers. So that's one that you can plant. Um, birds during the, the summer when they're, they're nesting, most birds are eating small insects. And that's why bird feeding in the summer doesn't really work out that well. There's some birds like goldfinches and housefinches that come in because they eat seeds and they also feed those seeds to their offspring. But by and large, chickadees and nuthatches and woodpeckers are out looking for really juicy insects that they can feed to their offspring that they can grow really, really fast with. So in, in a sense, the birds have food that, that are in your backyard. So you may be feeling guilt about not putting your feeders out, but those birds are, are able to, to make it. And in fact, um, we have a paper that was recently published that looked at bird feeding. And we challenged the birds in this study by clipping some of their, their wing feathers. And what we found was that the birds didn't depend on the bird feeders like we thought they would. We thought once we we made it a little bit harder for them to fly and they had to use a little bit more energy that they'd be on the feeders all the time. And in fact, it was the opposite. They actually avoided the feeders for about a week to 10 days and then they slowly came back. And what that suggested was that they had plenty of food in the environment around them. So if you're not feeding the birds uh, this winter, that's okay, the birds will get by. And, and again, if you step back and think about a chickadee and how long it's been, uh, in this setting where it's had to get food on its own before humans came along and started putting out feeders, um, those birds are, are 
well evolved to, to figure out where the food is and to survive the winters. Even when it's cold and, you know, on a uh, zero degree night, you say, how do these birds survive? Well, they can do it. They're, they're amazing. So I think what he's saying is that they don't need us. <laughs> I know. Yeah, we're not as important as we'd like to think we are when it comes exactly. to birds. So my chickens need to live in a house then? I feel like they do. I mean, I wallpapered the coop. You can look at my, my, my Instagram and be like, this girl's a nut. I, I, I wallpapered my chicken coop. Uh, well, like, do you think they're like a light shade of green? It does look like a pasture. <laughs> Oh my God! Uh, can can birds see color? Birds can see color, and they can see it better than us. We have three cones in our in our eyes, which help us see different shades along the um, the light spectrum. Birds have a, a fourth cone, and so they can see in the in the UV. So what you and I would look at and see on a particular bird might look very different. And in fact, we've we, there's been experiments looking at how birds interact and a lot of the plumage, a lot of feathers on their head and on their face look different under UV light than what we see. And so those are ways birds signal to each other. They often use vocalizations and they use uh, movements of their bodies, but just their feathers alone can, can tell each, each species and each individual a lot about others. So the green color was a good choice, right? <laughs> all right, all right. You know, I'm going to make a cocktail now because I can't believe it. You validated you right on one thing. Uh, so, so far, the crazy chicken lady, she picked the right color. <laughs> all right, I'm going to make a drink. Make a drink. And I feel like it's inspired, I, it's inspired by, um, Jim, by you being on the show and backyard culture of what is going on in my backyard because... I can't even believe that I, I have blackberry bushes and um, it might as well have not had any blackberry bushes because I got zero blackberries because the birds got all the blackberries. So I actually had to go to the farmer's market and get these blackberries, which are beautiful, oh, nice. um, so that I could actually make you a drink. Um, and I know that the birds ate all the blackberries because my car was 100% <laughs> an indication that they had eaten the blackberries blown around my, specifically my car. Yes. And, and pooped all over it. So there we go. All right. So, so a little birdie told me that you like daiquiris and so do I, but you know, a really great um, daiquiri and it's really fun and easy to do and a variation is just to add a little bit of berry to it. And... We're gonna just make a traditional um, daiquiri. We're gonna do a little simple syrup and rum, and we're gonna add uh, blackberries. So, really, really simple. What you're gonna do is, you know, depending on the size, these are very large blackberries. If you're making one drink, we're gonna make two. Um, we're gonna use about four to five blackberries, and we're just gonna hand squeeze them in. And you can muddle them as well. Uh, I just find that the, when they're this juicy, it's really great to just uh, put them inside of your um, hand squeezer throw them in and then and dump them into the um, shaker tin. That's fun. I've never done that. Yeah, it's just, a, it's it's fun. It's it's an easier way. I like to use one tool because like I realize when I make drinks at home that I'm the one that has to clean it up. <laughs> and I'm like, hey, can you clean up my station? Because my station is a disaster. So it's just me. So I'm like, I'm like, hey, can you clean? Oh, it's just you. Okay, good. Yeah. And I'm, and I'm usually making the one making drinks for everybody. Apparently she's now, not while papering the chicken coop. Yeah, apparently now I'll be making cocktails for my chickens. I'm like, oh, did you, did you love it more? No. I'm like, they don't love anybody. I'm going to actually, I'll make them an elixir. I don't, anyway, so we're going to add to that as we're making a daiquiri. So we're going to do one ounce of um, lime juice. So we're going to, these are fairly large limes today. So we are going to use the juice of one and a half limes. We all know fresh is best. 
Yeah, it is. Uh, so, so just to side note, when you're using fresh berries in, in a daiquiri, 100%, it makes it more bitter. And I know that sounds a little crazy to say, because why would blackberries and lime juice do that? But blackberries by nature are not that sweet. You have to yeah. add sugar to make them really sweet. Anyway, so we have our lime juice in there, the blackberries. Now we need the good stuff, the rum, right? So we're going to use a little Don Q um, white rum. And we're going to use two ounces. And I like to always do like two ounces and a quarter because it's, it gives you the forgiveness for uh, if you put, make it a little too um, sugary with your simple syrup. And then we're going to use a half an ounce of simple syrup. So we're making two drinks. I'm pouring one ounce in here. And that is it. Now I'm going to put some ice in here. And we're going to shake and strain. <laughs> I'm gonna, I was going to say we should call the stream bird droppings, but that's probably not a good idea. <laughs> uh, I was just thinking about my car. I'm like, it's so annoying. Let me shake this up. Such a great sound. It is a great sound. It's very shushy today. Shushy, shushy. I know. Another uh, pro word. <laughs> what shows? Yeah, shushy. I know. I'm really, I'm really nailing that I'm an expert at cocktails, right? So we're gonna um, still get color. It's so beautiful. It is really pretty. Mm -hmm. And I like. I love. Mm -hmm. I love blackberries. They really lend themselves. They can be violet. They can be red. They're beautiful to use in drinks. And you can also double strain this if you want to. Generally, a daiquiri doesn't need a garnish. If you're feeling uh, so inclined, you could put a little um, lime wheel on it. Really up to you. Um, it doesn't, it doesn't technically need it, but you know, it's prettier it's with. pretty. So, um, I wouldn't suggest trying to put a blackberry inside your glass because you will ruin your clothes. Um, <laughs> okay. So that is it. So cheers. I am sorry that uh, you cannot imbibe right now, but hopefully I'm going to make this at home, Jim. Cheers. I'm going to stop on the way home today and get some ingredients so that I can try this myself. So Gina, I have a question for you. Yes. Are there are there any cocktails that are that use eggs? Speaking use, of birds, of course. Of course, Wait, it's funny you should um, ask that question, Jim. I, I don't know. I can't think of any offhand. So a pisco sour is the number one. A whiskey, any sour drink usually has an egg white in it. Um, in the winter time, you could do like whole egg drinks that you do with like beer, whole egg, and you heat them up, and they're like really like delicious, like a custardy kind of drink. Then you have like this whole realm of like eggnogs and coquitos, sure. right? That use eggs. Yeah. Um, okay. What's interesting now, speaking of eggs, I can't believe I didn't make an egg cocktail. Duh. Oh, so annoying. I'm so annoyed with myself right now. I should have made an egg cocktail. I shouldn't have asked. I should have. What's asked. interesting enough is that people are starting to use different kinds of eggs in their drinks, like um, for different like textures, such as like duck eggs. Um, uh, quail eggs, which are kind of feel like are really not really, um, they don't have much of anything I mean, to it them. It seems like it would take an awful lot of eggs. Well, no, because you can take quail eggs. Here's a fun recipe, right? So you have quails and people raise them and you have like all these quail eggs. You're like, what do you do with it? Besides make a miniature bacon, egg and cheese. <laughs> you take your quail eggs. You um, you really lightly poach them because you almost want to make them because they, they, they become hard boiled very quickly. So you put them in boiling water, like, you know, a couple of minutes. Pull them out, let them cool, and then you crack the shell just a little bit. And then at the same time, you're making like some kind of tea, like lopsong tea or a green tea or, you know, your favorite like really herb tea. 
and you take the cracked eggshell and you soak it in the tea. Oh. And you pull them out and they make a great bar snack and you put a little bit of salt. So that's um, it's a really, it's, it's, a, it's a high-end bar snack. But honestly, at the end of the day, it's so easy to do and you can do it with a, a giant egg, but giant eggs to eat are a little bit weird. But like, mm. you know, go to your farmer's market, especially where you are, you know, you have so, so many quail eggs come from your area. Um, I feel like you, you get those in your farmer's market. They're not expensive. They'll be like $2 a dozen and you can make this in like really fun thing to serve on the side of like martinis or drinks like that. Oh, interesting. So when you um, soak the egg in the tea and it's because it's cracked, does the so you, egg take on the color of the tea? The, not the egg shell, just the egg white will. Yeah. And then you'll obviously to peel and eat it. And then it'll have this little cracked um, coloring on it. It's really pretty. Oh, that sounds delicious. Yeah, it's that a really like fun, fun thing to do. And then like, um, you know, eggs and martinis and caviar and, you know, anchovies and all that kind of stuff. And martinis have always gone hand in hand. So yep. just another way to, to do it. I cannot believe I didn't make you an egg drink. <laughs> what was I thinking? That just flew right by me. No. Uh-huh. Well, I, I, Gina, I like the, oh, that was bad. I like the blackberry <laughs> though, because we have a, it's a very um, nasty, invasive, exotic blackberry here, but it has the most delectable berries and they are ripe right now. And I'm going to take my kids out and we're going to go get a whole bucket full of them and make some of these drinks because it is it is blackberry season in Western Oregon right now. That's why your car is a mess. Yeah. <laughs> I also found there's another kind of berry that um, birds eat called June berries. I didn't realize it's a thing. It's a thing on the north and um, where I live. They're, they're like teeny like red versions of blackberries. And I thought they were like a mulberry and they're not. They're called June berries apparently. And I looked it up because I didn't believe I didn't believe everybody in my neighborhood. And like they're, they're like June berries. So I looked it up. They're like, they're really better for humans, even you can, but the birds go crazy for it and they eat them all. Yeah. So I was like, I'm like, God. Yeah. We have those near our, our house in Virginia. So, yeah. Yep. But you can't eat them. They're, they're not mulberry. Well, you yeah. can eat them. They're just not. Tasty. Tasty. Well, yeah, apparently the birds would disagree, but you know. So, so in your free time, I have one more, I have one last question and then I will let you Is ask it, a question. <laughs> no. So in your free time, do you actually, because this is what you do for work, do you like study the birds that like go still go bird watching and stuff like that in your free time? So I, I like to get out and, and explore. I, I wouldn't call it birding per se. Sometimes I do go with, with friends or if there's someone in town, a colleague from the East Coast who hasn't seen some of the birds that we have out here, we, we might go to the beach or go on a, a hike or something. But I've got a couple of young kids, so I... What I, I also do research on bees, and bees are a lot easier for kids to see. So a lot of times when we go out, those are what the kids are able to see up close. They're able to catch them and look at them, and they're, they've got containers that they can catch the bee in, and it's got a little magnifying glass on the cover and so they can look in. So we do probably more bee watching than we do bird watching nowadays. But I still get out, and I, I do a lot of my um, birding by ear. So I don't necessarily look for birds, but I'm out listening and hearing the, the different calls and songs and kind of know what's in the area um, just by, by sound. Bees are another very interesting. Will you, will you just follow anything that like, you know, has yaw and pitch? You're like, <laughs> okay, it's got yaw and pitch. And it's not navigated by a human. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to follow it around. <laughs> I, usually, I usually introduce my research as bees and birds as opposed to birds and bees because then yeah. 
the birds and the birds and the bees. That's a whole nother class. Here's here's my favorite thing about bees. Wait, I got I got one. Italian honeybees are my favorite bees. They're beautiful, and if you can get your um, like my friends that have hives, oh my gosh, they produce the most beautiful honey, and they are actually this is gonna sound ridiculous. What I'm gonna say, they are very um, calm. Like they, they're like they're not like other like some other honeybees are um, generally a little bit more like territorial. Busy as a bee. And like they're just a nice bee if you're gonna I, at least what I've I've, I've witnessed they're nice is, bees. <laughs> is if you're gonna keep bees like they're a nice bee to have. Huh. Is that mm-hmm. am I wrong? Yeah. Am I saying the wrong? Are they the worst bee? And I just happen to know some good Italian honeybees. I don't know. Is it because I'm Italian you're and they're just nice? Biased. Bees? You're biased because they're an like Italian oh she's bee. Italian too. Don't sting her. <laughs> <laughs> they know. They can tell. No, there are different varieties of, of honeybees, and there are some that are a little bit more temperamental than, than others. So you're right. Some some are preferred to work with. I'm not sure if, if where Italian um, bees fall on that spectrum. But again, I don't, it's kind of like the chicken and the bird thing. I, I study native bees. So I don't study honeybees. So I don't know that much about them, to be honest with you. Did you, so here's an interesting thing. There's some, something going viral that you bring up bees and them being nice. I just did air quotes. It's a girl who saved this bee that was in the middle of the street. She thought it was going to get run over. So she ran out and picked up the bee and saved the bee. The bee has been with her by her side for like the last couple of weeks. She's, she's doing, it's, it's, it's her social media thing, but it shows the bee sitting on her glasses. Everywhere she goes, the bee stays with her. She goes shopping, the bee goes with her, and he just sits on her glasses. He hasn't, he, I don't know, I'm making it a boy bee, I don't know. But yeah, it's a, it's a thing that's going about on the, on the social medias, all those kids, you know, on the social medias with their bee friends. I would 100% not tell anybody it's such a bee. <laughs> I'm just wondering if it's, I gotta go check it out. Can I you just, touch bee? I mean, yeah. like, do you yeah, handle bees? Sure. Yeah, so... So bees get a bad rap because, mostly by, because of wasps and yellow jackets, which are their cousins. But bees are, are basically a vegetarian wasp. They branched off millions of years ago and they go after flower parts. They don't go after meat. So if you have a, a barbecue and you have some leftover steak or, or chicken or something, the things that land on that plate of steak are yellow jackets. And they come and they take little bites and they go back to their their nest site. Bees don't do that. Bees won't bother you at a picnic. And so everyone kind of conflates wasps bad and then bees are bad because they can't tell them apart. They don't want to get close to tell them apart. But by and large, um, native bees are not large social groups. So so we have a hive that may have 20 or 30,000 individual bees in it. Most bees are solitary nesting, which means it's a single female and she's doing it all by herself. She may have a hole in the ground or she may have a, a little cavity like a mason bee, but it's just her and she probably raises maybe eight or 10 individual bees over the course of that season. She doesn't even really raise them. She lays an egg and then she dies because usually the flight season is just a few weeks and then those bees develop over time. And something like a mason bee, you can pick up in your hand and you can look at. And if you if you pinch the bee, if you if the bee thinks it's gonna be hurt, it's gonna respond, it's gonna sting you. But a lot of times you can just have you have a bee on your hand. And my, my kids are uh, five and a half and three and a half, and they go out and they handle mason bees and they catch, uh, bumblebees are a little bit different because they are a social, um, group. they have social groups, but most solitary bees, you could just put your hand right there and they'd crawl on your finger and they'd be fine. Huh, see, they're just trying to keep them to their like, 
she's gonna step on me, I gotta sting her. Or she's gonna smack me, I gotta, he's just trying to protect himself. Guy's just trying to make his way through the world. <laughs> yeah, because if, if, if you think about it, a solitary bee, a solitary bee doesn't have all the sisters that a honeybee does. So if she gets whacked, then she doesn't have any opportunity to, uh, to reproduce anymore. And that's why honeybees can sting and then the colony continues because there's so many of them. So it, it gets into this very complex thing called haplodiploidy, which we don't have time for. But basically, it, it works out that solitary bees are nicer in a sense and you can handle them usually without having any issues. So the long, long, the long and the short of it is you were right. Bees can be nice. See? <laughs> yep. Before we go any further, we forgot to do our barkeeping. Where are they going to go to get this recipe? They're Even though you it. wish you would have done a sour now. <laughs> I know, I know. Um, you could add egg whites. Mm. I know, I'm just kidding. Um, but you're going to go to Designated Drinker Not Show for our tips and tricks and recipes. And um, how to get to Jim or, yeah. Well, you definitely want to read, you can read his article, um, which he mentioned earlier. It's, don't worry, birds won't become dependent on you feeding them, says study. I love that. <laughs> you like that delivery? <laughs> no, but, or you could sign up for his classes. Why not? And they're online? <laughs> What's that? No, his article is. I know, and the classes, you, I know, you don't have an online class, do you? Well, through COVID, everything was online, but I don't, I don't teach. I teach at OSU. And when we are going back to classes this year, we're doing everything in person. So in Not theory, we won't be online, but we don't, we don't really know in the coming weeks what's going to happen. No, you don't get to hire Jim to like help you with your chickens, Gina. <laughs> I mean, if you want to come to these chicken goats, questions, I, I apparently am obsessed with them. <laughs> I'll try and answer your chicken questions, Gina. Just let me know what, what they are. And then in, in turn, he can ask you all the cocktail questions. See, it's win-win, barter system. <laughs> yeah, exactly. There we go. I'll send you some right. eggs. All right, I'm ready. You ready? All right, this is last it. Hit. All right, so Jim, this is how we know if you ever listen to our show or not, because we have a last question for you. So in uh, this day and age, you know, everyone identifies themselves with a spirit and animal, and you might identify yourself with the Great American Finch because it is the only bird I apparently know. <laughs> and... <laughs> and um, you know, you can adapt to any situation and you can be a city dweller or live in the woods. And that's what I love about the finches, right? If you could be one ingredient, I, I'm sorry, if you could be one ingredient, um, whether it be for cocktails or for food, what would it be and why? One ingredient for a food or cocktail and why? Man, that's a tough one. Maybe I'd be an egg. He wants to be an egg. <laughs> Why? Yeah, you could because you could transform it to so many different things. You could be a whole egg, like you said, with the with um, the quail. You could be you could be um, put into a different setting, like a I'm thinking of a eggnog drink where you're kind of whipped up, or you could be an egg white for something like a whiskey sour. So there's a lot of you never know where you're going to go if you're an egg, and someone's someone's putting you into a into a cocktail or even if they're if they're baking or cooking with you as well there's so many different routes you could go so so maybe I'll, maybe i'll go with an egg i like <laughs> it's it. awesome necessary necessary I, ingredient I would say it's and necessary holds everything together yeah, i'm into absolutely. that <laughs> yeah there you go <laughs> jim thank you for being here today it was really nice i know you got all your bird questions i answered. know I, well, I i'm gonna come with a dozen more but that's all we can always have another episode you right? had to hold back <laughs> <laughs> all right Cheers to you, Jim. 
Cheers. Thanks so much. This was cheers. fun. Cheers. Cheers. Oh, we should say, um, um, cheers. Keep flying. Oh, there oh, you go. Oh, that's good. Cheers. The Designated Drinker Show is produced by Missing Link, a podcast media company that is dedicated to connecting people to intelligent, engaging, and informative content. Also in the Missing Link lineup of podcasts is Roger That, a podcast dedicated to guiding you through the haze of dementia, led by skilled caregivers Bobby and Mike Carducci. Now, if you're looking for a whole new way to enjoy the theater, check out Between Acts, an immersive audio theater podcast experience. Each episode takes you on a spellbinding journey through the works of newfound playwrights, from dramas to comedies and everything in between. Find Missing Link's League of Podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your podcasts. Please don't forget to subscribe, download, and review the shows. Your review helps our shows reach new audiences. To find out more about Missing Link, visit missinglink.company. That's missinglink.company.